You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. Well, it's been a very big week in the energy industry since we last broadcast to you and joining me to dissect and interpret all of this is David Leach from ITK Services. David, um, how are you? Giles, I'm well. Trust the listeners are well. Epic week. Uh, in many respects, we could talk international politics, but it's an epic week or two in uh, electricity. And I think uh, it's only the start of a lot more stuff. Well, two big announcements. It started last week with Origin's um, decision to close the Araring coal-fired generator seven years early, 2025 instead of 2032. Um, that's Australia's, yes, um, the Araring um, 2.8 gigawatts um, and followed very quickly by Mike Cannon-Brooks and Brookfield making a joint bid for AGL with the intention of taking it private, investing $20 billion in a transition plan and closing the coal generators as quickly as they can. We'll get back to Araring later on and Origin's decision, but let's first listen to Mike Cannon-Brooks, who joined us earlier this afternoon. Mike Cannon-Brooks, thank you very much for coming back again on the Energy Insiders podcast. Thanks for having us. Look, um, we only had you just last uh, December, uh, just a few months ago, but clearly you've been very busy in the meantime. Um, lots of things to discuss, but let's start with the big news, AGL. And I'd like to actually just go back to find out how this started. When did you start thinking about AGL as a target? And I'm just wondering if you can sort of describe what your partners, Brookfield, um, have described as like a meeting of the minds about this target. Yeah, look, we've been pretty honest. Um, I have to be honest, this started before the December podcast. So uh, I, I was honest, but I was maybe not entirely How could you keep that from us? Um, <laughs> uh, I knew you guys would love that. Um, look, we when the demerger was announced, right, it, it doesn't, uh, I'm talking to the converted here, but it, it doesn't make sort of logical or economic sense. In fact, it's, it's I think, going to be a retrograde sort of backward step, right? And uh, so we started looking at it. Uh, way back then and you know looking around and this is obviously not the sort of exercise that we've participated in before uh, but talk to folk who are knowledgeable about those exercises and thought maybe there's a chance so did a little bit more work and put a small team on it and in doing so um, got more convicted that there's both an economic path and uh, an alternate path that um, with the right capital and experience uh, and talent and ambition that I think uh, uh, we can push through and we can make happen. And that started forming up. And then we, uh, again, talked to a few other folk. We actually found a number of different groups who were uh, looking at this as an idea. And uh, Brookfield were a really good match for us in that they had their own models of how it would work with a different set of experiences. And so sort of combining them and our various strengths um, I think has led to the, you know, the combined strength is it, it's a one of those, um, you know, one plus one equals three, I guess. 
<laughs> Why is it so important to be able to get inside the fossil fuel industry? Because that's essentially what you're doing here. Um, most developments in renewables um, have been built sort of outside the fossil fuel industry, and it's really just a sort of like an attack and sort of a skirmish on the exterior. And you know, it, it's become it's starting to sort of um, challenge uh, the very business models. But why is it so important to sort of hop inside, which is what you're doing with AGL? Look, I think it's a question of how can you get the cheapest power to people as fast as possible? And I don't have to tell anyone presumably listening to this podcast that more renewables, if done sensibly and smartly with grid, and you can take all the FUD and we'll, we can talk through all the different bits and pieces. But if broadly put, done honestly, I would say, will result in cheaper power prices. And so the question is, how fast can we get those there? Um, it turns out that I believe there's a good theory in this particular case, and this may be a unicorn or there may be lots of others around the world that could copy this model. Actually doing that in a singular entity may be a faster approach and a more economic approach to doing that. And the more economic the approach is, that'll mean that you get that cheaper power uh, to those customers and probably results in a better business of actually selling the power, right? Fundamentally, this business is about selling power to its customers and they want that power to be cheap. Uh, anyone buying any product wants it to be presumably as cheap as you can get it. Um, and they increasingly want it to be clean. Um, they want mm. it to be there because they have their own decarbonization goals, whether they're a manufacturer or a business or even a household. So um, I, I do think it's a bit of a model. I'm not sure it's quite the way that you've phrased it. I think it's just a, how can we accelerate that decarbonization and do it in, a, in an economic way, right? That, that creates yeah. jobs and that reduces prices. Can I just ask them one question before I'm giving David a go? How fast do you think it can be transitioned? Um, you've talked about the integrated system plan from the Australian energy market operator. That step change plan, which is now their central scenario, um, assumes or models that um, all brown coal generators, including Loyang A, will be gone from the system by 2032. Um, it's a hydrogen superpower scenario, which is gaining increasing support and traction models all all coal generation gone by around that time. Do you have any particular dates in mind for Loyang A and Bayswater? Are they consistent with what AEMO is modelling? Look, um, I'm, I'm a huge fan of AEMO. I think they, the integrated systems plan, the more I look around the world, is, is really a world-leading document, right? There are very few grids of our size and complexity doing anything like what they're doing. And the fact that we're on, you'll correct me, version four of it, something like that, version five, um, it gets better every time and it provides a great uh, exemplar. It, I believe, models in the step change that's 14 gigawatts of the 23 gigawatts of, of coal generation are going to disappear by 2030, I think, approximately that. Something like that. Um, so uh, if you go and do the maths on where that 14 gigawatts comes from, uh, I think you'll find that Loyang, Bayswater, Liddell, and Ararang uh, pretty much put you exactly on the money there. So... It, it's pretty much exactly in line with what they are modeling. And again, they're very clear in that plan about what needs to be done on the other side. Now, we're very lucky, I think, that uh, both the New South Wales governments and Victorian governments have been incredibly ambitious and forward-thinking around transmission. And those projects are sort of well down the line. And, you know, when we're getting to the eight-year eight timeframe, we'll be significantly far down the path on those sorts of things. Um, all of this creates hopefully more certainty in the market. Uh, you would also be well familiar that the uncertainty we face over the 20 years drives prices up, right? Drives the, the, the cost of capital up, uh, creates risk for project developers. 
Um, hopefully, the more there is certainty around here, we will see more supply come online. And some of that can be built by us as a potential future AGL. Uh, some of that can be contracted by us as a potential future AGL. Some of it can just be put into the market as replacement capacity. All of that is possible. If there's one thing we've seen over the last 10 years, if we create that stability and create that low cost of capital, we will be blown away by how much renewable capacity will come online in that period of time. So IMO's plan of, uh, I think it's sort of 8X or something like that in that period of time, I think that's that's entirely feasible. Um, and obviously you've, I'm sure, seen a lot of the um, FUD that's been thrown around today around, oh, well, you need two and a half times, three times the capacity, et cetera, to be replaced. And uh, our modeling doesn't doesn't certainly doesn't show that. Uh, I'd love to see mo their modeling that shows that that's needed. But um, the replacement capacity of a lot of these things is already banked in a lot of those existing plans that are out there. As well as obviously you're well aware that most of these things don't run to anywhere near their nameplate capacity at the moment on an annualized basis. So we need to be very careful where we deceptive with our maths. I, I, I guess, Mike, uh, you know, what the demerger has kind of thrown up when you look at what the investment banking research analysts show is that the uh, retail business is likely to be quite valuable and that there's quite a good growth prospect in that business as households are electrified, you know, probably over half the average household's energy consumption is from uh, petrol and, 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 and diesel these days, if you see the way Saul Griffith models it out and his team. Well over half, yes. Well over half. And so, you know, that's if you uh, have a big, large retail base, that's kind of an exciting prospect that even with self-consumption, uh, you can still be growing your volumes, which is something that's been very missing. On uh, So I guess that could be quite a valuable part of it. And that in a sense, is, is really what you're buying, is the opportunity to sell those guys what they want, green electricity, uh, you know, into, into a growing demand. Am I sort of thinking about that the right way? Uh, I think that you are thinking about that the right way in terms of the retail base, and we certainly believe in electrification of households and businesses will, um, will grow demand in, in a big way. Um, and that demand needs to be met, by the way, also with, with extra supply. I, I think the idea that the, the value is not in the combined entity is one that I would like to challenge. So the, the difficult part about that is if you bring the capital, so we have about $20 billion that we're bringing towards building uh, a lot of renewables, that gives us the ability to build and contract those renewables at a large scale to deliver to those customers and still create some of the flexibility. Now, I would argue it doesn't look like the Gen Taylor model we have today. It's a much more modern technology forward um, you know, smarter, faster, more agile, you know, retail plus uh, distribution, um, retail plus uh, uh, generation mechanism than we have today. But the other alternative for the grid we should think about, right? So there's two counterfactual narratives here. The demerger takes all of those assets, does not give them the capital to transform at all and puts them into um, a singular entity, Right. Now, that entity ranges from struggling to bankrupt, depending on what happens with it. Now, that is going to be very bad for everybody's prices because someone's going to have to pick up the bill of both the remediations for the actual plant closures as well as how do you transition that sensibly and what do you do with all of the things that are there as they shut down. Now, we need to be very careful that that is clearly the counterfactual narrative here. 
Um, it's it's not particularly responsible way to do it, but it may be you know fine and legal and all those sorts of things. But we need to be very careful that that there's a, there's a sort of narrative that that is a lower price option for the consumer. I, I don't believe it will be. I think it will be a higher price option, and that it's a better option for shareholders. I, no, I certainly don't think it's a better option for shareholders. And from a grid perspective, in terms of stability. I don't think we want very large generators without the capacity to transform themselves, if you like, right? The government's been very clear. It wants the private markets to come up with replacement capacity and it wants that capacity to be, you know, as you sort of slide down one, you want to slide up the other and they want that to be guaranteed. That's exactly the plan we've put together with the capital to do that. That is far less risky than having it, you know, put into a corner and sort of said, look, we hope you can keep running for a while. And um, if, you know, those closures would be far more difficult to do in a separate entity. And, you know, we know that we'll all pay the cost of that, whether that's through government picking up the tab in taxes or whether it's through higher prices in the market. Yeah, it's interesting because if I uh, didn't think about it from the public's point of view, but just thought about it uh, in an investment banking point of view, which is the way I guess I was trained and experienced, I would have thought that maybe you could just pick up the new Energy Australia and let the uh, coal generate for half the price of buying the whole thing and let the old coal generation business just die of its own accord, which it probably would by about 2030. Uh, so I can understand that uh, it's actually safer for the whole system and, and, and probably better for the whole community to do it the way you're suggesting just not necessarily better for you <laughs> in terms of making money, which, I, which is not the only thing on the table here. Uh, well, I, I think it is. Also, we should remember that the, um, you know, uh, we have a, an interesting blueprint in the plans for Liddell, right? We should be very clear that there are three big plants at the moment, one of which has already been closed down by AGL as is and has a quite comprehensive plan. And if you look through the plan, whether they can execute on it, it's a different question, but around making a smart energy hub with batteries and different businesses and industrial things. Why? Because you have obviously great transmission coming into those sites. You have space and land and various other things. So um, there are assets in those sites. They may not be the plant itself, right? But there's a lot of assets in and around that can be attractive in terms of uh, creating that replacement capacity. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I think that's very clear. Uh, there are also liabilities, of course, but someone's going to have to incur those at some point in time. And you certainly, as we've seen in the offshore oil uh, industry, you don't want those to be just sold to someone that can't can't fund them. That's um, we're, we're trying to point that out very clearly, right? That's either borne by the current shareholders or it's borne by the government. But the liability will exist. It can be deferred by repurposing sure. the site, but it's still going to exist in the long term. Yes. And uh, can I ask, I guess you must have been talking to, uh, one of the things about AGL is there aren't that many institutional shareholders to actually uh, talk to about whether this is a good deal or not. It's a matter of uh, somehow either selling uh, the board to engage with it or selling the general public. But the general public, when they're all small shareholders, as I understand they largely are at AGL, they can't really pressure the board in the way that big institutions can in some other deals, can they? Um, look, that's probably something to ask Stuart and some of those. I think my understanding is you're generally in the correct direction. Um, th there are some, some 
bigger shareholders. Uh, but yes, it has a very large retail base. That that is is for sure. And well, I'll just pass on that. And then I just want to talk about the future funding. I mean, uh, if we close down uh, um, uh, uh, Yang and close down Araring, it needs, on my rough estimates, uh, you know, something like six gigawatts uh, just just for the uh, non. Um, uh, industrial loads, the non-aluminium loads, just to do the traditional and, and more to do those industrial loads. I mean, those contracts might go away anyway. I mean, Tomago Smelter can just contract out as it wants when the current contract comes to an end. It might go to an AGL entity. It might not. It'll probably depend on price and a lot of other stuff. But the, but your retail customers that you have at the moment, you probably need six gigawatts, uh, you know, which is like $10 billion of CapEx to, or something like that, to, to fund it. How do do you think that's something that uh, is a skill that should exist within AGL or is it something that you would just buy in the power in the way that the Gentailers do at the moment, the energy? Um, that was an awfully long question. I thought you were going in a different direction at the start. So, there, so sorry. Was... Well, you can answer, answer whatever question you like. Just forget um, the question if you'd rather say something else. Uh, no, I, I think, look, I do think there's a skill of um, uh, building slash contracting and being able to do both right i have i have a a deep belief that you need to probably be pretty expert at both and it probably depends on exactly what for right um again long-time listeners would be well familiar it's not quite as simple as just putting some panels in a field and plugging them in and so that capital uh that we're bringing towards building uh new renewable assets probably isn't going to go to just sort of large-scale solar farms, right? There is probably a lot of other renewable assets, whether they be, you know, uh, uh, chemical lithium-ion batteries that are often talked about quite a a lot uh, or various other grid-level assets that would be required to balance what can be contracted in, which is a large set of uh, wind or solar-based electrons effectively. So... I do think there's a skill in being able to balance that for the large customer base. It, it's it's a more modern and uh, you know technology and software based approach to the um, Gen Taylor model. You can kind of think it like like that. Uh, does that does that make sense? It, it it does, and I'm sure that a lot of thinking and uh, will develop over time. Giles, I'll I'll hand back to you. Oh, thank you, David. Um, Mike, just um, what, can, what more can you tell us about the modelling? I mean, have you sort of worked out in terms of sort of needed capacity and shares of wind, solar and various forms of storage? And I'm just wondering what you're thinking about the New South Wales plan. It's a very detailed plan. It's an infrastructure plan creating five, at least five different renewable energy zones. To what extent will that help you or perhaps even limit or hinder you because you're kind of dependent on like a central control of the rollout of new capacity will you have to work within or without that system or both uh look i'm a huge fan of the new south wales plan uh i think it's ambitious and i think it brings together the transmission that we need with the generation it's sort of the hand in hand you know the way that the contracts work in the renewable energy zones and does it fast enough for us to um for it to make a difference. Um, so I'm a big fan of that plan. Obviously, we'd be working within that broad framework and we've been had good conversations with the New South Wales government uh, about those sorts of things. So yes, it would be within within that plan. 
Okay. Have you been disappointed by the reaction? Um, there's been a lot of, as you, as you so I think, described it earlier in the podcast, this sort of the FUD, the sort of you know, the scare campaigns about prices and things like that. I mean, I, I guess you would possibly expect it, given the sort of the nature of the um, energy debate in Australia. But were you sort of disappointed to an extent? <laughs> um, look, that's a hard one to answer. Uh, we're we're pretty clear that we're, we're playing chess. We're not playing checkers. So I would. <laughs> Be, look, am I disappointed? Sure. Did I expect everyone to jump around and say, but prices are going to go up? Of course. That's what they say no matter what you do. Um, hmm. So I, I'm not, I'm disappointed but not surprised, I suppose, by, by, by the reactions. Um, I, I would say I've been pleasantly surprised by the reactions we've had from many other parts of the community, right? Um, from the shareholder community, from uh, uh, staff at AGL, from um, lots of people who I don't think normally get engaged, uh, energized, we might say, if we wanted to be punny, um, by this debate and this discussion, right? I- I've been surprised by how, um, how much, I suppose, there's been a-, a relatively balanced debate and a lot of people seem well aware of these issues far further than I would expect them to be. So I I think what's happening here is we sort of think when we get to climate or energy or renewables or whatever else, um, we think there's a broad population that's living sort of five years ago and is kept back by, you know, media and government and everyone else. And then there's a few people living in the industry. I think actually the broad population is far further forward down the curve than we expect, probably due to they have panels on their roof, they've seen more electric cars on the road, they're used to this discussion, they're probably a bit tired of the, you know, renewables equals expensive and unreliable and when the wind don't blow and the sun doesn't shine and all this sort of stuff. We've all heard it for for a decade, right? Mm. I've been surprised as to how positively received it's been by that sort of uh, uh, broad populace in the lots of different inputs and random text messages and other things I've had. So um, I think that's a really good sign. I think people are far more educated in the broad level and far more sceptical of those traditional it's going to be expensive kind of claims. So um, if I could just come back to the shareholder value proposition that you're putting, which, which you know, the more I think about it, the more compelling it is, it's that, uh, it's that just by uh, buying AGL as it is, uh, you can uh, close down the coal generation and replace it with new renewable energy without anyone noticing much difference. And, and, AGL will be worth a bit more because the cost of energy will be less. And, and if you do that well, you may get an advantage on competitors. Otherwise, the electricity price will be just the same. Um, but on the other hand, if we go ahead with the demerger, the retail business may do pretty well, but it's the smaller part of the current profits. And even if its value goes up a loss, it still won't uh, necessarily compensate for the fact that the coal generation business uh, might be worth pretty much zero when you add everything up, and therefore shareholders will lose about half or some portion of their current value. So they'd basically be a lot better off going with you. Is is, is that the case broadly that you're put in, or have I misunderstood it? That's it. Do you want a job? Do you want fantastic? That's fantastic. You've nailed it. Yes, absolutely correct, Ryan. Um, I would also point out from a broader point of view, the, um, the demerged entity creates a lot more risk. So our proposal for shareholders has certainty attached to it. It is a certain price that you can get today 
for what's there. You are not bearing the risk of the future, if you know what I mean, in terms of how that happens. And I would point you to uh, AGL's own documentation on their TCFD disclosures, right, which is a really good report on their um, climate and finance uh, disclosures from last year. And they talk about the demerged entity and what the various risk factors are, in their own words, for uh, a cell, the energy business that will have the, the fossil fuel plants. And most of what their risk factors were written roughly a year ago have already happened and they said they would be in far faster. So they talked about if there's any other plants that close quicker, this could be a challenge for us. Well, we've just had one announced like a week or two ago. So there's a lot of these things. You can talk about this stuff moves faster than we think, but that risk associated with this stuff moving even faster than you know is currently thought, which... If there's one thing we've learned, I think that's generally that acceleration is happening uh, in terms of this this transition. Yeah, it's, 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 criti it's critical mass. Once you get to critical mass, then then you get acceleration. I'm going to hand back to Giles, but uh, you talk about risk. And again, I put my investment banking hat on. Uh, I want to point out that AGL is demerger is creating the additional risk all by itself. And the reason why it's creating this risk is because it only has a contract between the coal generators and the retail business that lasts for six years. And, uh, and the volumes in that contract decline from 15 terawatt hours to zero over those six years. So what it creates is a free option for the retail business to buy from someone else. Uh, uh, and, that's, and the cost of that option essentially has to be paid by the coal generation business and the, in the form of extra risk that, 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 that retail doesn't buy it. I hope I haven't made that sound too complicated, but there's a whole lot of extra risk that is actually created by this demerger for the coal generation business. That is, that is entirely correct. Mike, we need, well, your, your time is coming to an end. Um, I've got a couple other quick questions. Um, what's the latest on some of your other investments? I mean, you, today you've announced a $200 million injection into uh, Infratet, which is pretty exciting because it's going to fund some more battery storage projects and um, uh, other renewable projects. Just very briefly, the, the prime motivation for that? Um, look, it takes all sorts, takes all types. Um, we, again, in the um, investment arm in, in Grok, have a broad view of decarbonisation in the transition and where the economic opportunities are. Uh, InfraDebt is a good example of the more stable, you know, uh, uh, debt end of the bottom. It's not, you know, if you put what's at the other end, maybe something like SunDrive, um, what the, the boys are doing there is fantastic in terms of trying to build more efficient solar panels using copper instead of silver and these sorts of things. But probably a much higher risk business, although they're doing a really good job because, you know, it's much earlier um, in that, that curve. I think it's going to take all types. Um, we've been, had a long relationship with InfraDebt. Um, they've, they've done very well at what they're doing and they're really good operators, uh, smart uh, managers of capital. And so very happy to be associated there. And what can you tell us about SunDrive and also maybe the Sun Cable project? What's the latest on that? This is this massive sort of solar and uh, battery project in the Northern Territory. That's right. Um, I had to explain that we're building more panels in the Northern Territory than you would need to replace the two large coal generators in AGL. Um, <laughs> that blew a few people's minds. And are you going to be building that in, um, in Australia, those, the, the actual modules? Uh, you mean they're going to be sitting in the Northern Territory? Mm-hmm. Or the, the factory manufacturing of the panels themselves? Yes. 
Oh, that's that's a much longer answer. Um, that's a complicated <laughs> question. Potentially. Um, <laughs> potentially. So, so I understand that the Sun Cable business, uh, I think the latest I heard is that the Singapore government's uh, out there contracting for power and maybe the Northern Territory government as well. And uh, that, that's the process that Sun Cable would be involved in at the moment. Look, there's, there's various processes around. Um, again, uh, the, the basics of the project have been well covered uh, by your uh, great show here. So probably you can listen to past episodes um, for the AAPL, the, the Australian Asian Powerlink, which is our first cable. Um, that's the one that goes to Singapore. Um, Sun Cable as a business is obviously uh, pretty committed to making that cable happen. And that involves participating with lots of different governments um, you know, we keep, I would say, checking off uh, our levels as we go through. That's a sort of decade-long project, and we're, what, three or four years in now. So um, pretty bullish on, on where that's going. Um, Mike, so I, I, yeah, I, I guess one of my investment banking colleagues I was, uh, was chatting to said, look, he, he's a great guy, Mike Cannon-Brooks, but does he have enough uh, ability and capacity to do this massive project in the Northern Territory and take a, over AGL? I mean, isn't, isn't that a kind of two-day exercise at least, you know, or something? <laughs> it's a fair question. Um, look, I, I, I'm incredibly lucky. I have a fantastic team of people who, who do this, right? Uh, the team at Grok doing the investing, um, the team at Sun Cable, I, I get to turn up to board meetings. You know what I mean. So it's uh, it's very different. I'm I'm highly passionate about the space and have a, a pretty broad knowledge of how all the various factors from the economics to the science of the technology come together. It happens to be largely what I do in my day job as well, but in a different domain. Um, but I, I I couldn't do this without a, a fantastic team of people at each of those different companies. Um, that uh, that just sort of end up making me look good more of the time than I'm actually contributing, I would say. Um, and obviously on the home side, you know, I have a fantastic team at home, um, and the kids and the wife and everything, uh, and Annie making uh, making my life possible. So uh, I would say thank you to all of them. Well, we say thank you to um, Mike Cannon-Brooks for joining us once again on the Energy Insiders podcast and look forward to talking to you again and look forward to hearing more about these um amazing projects and um, proposals. So uh, thanks once again for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm sure we will be uh, talking soon. Good on you. Cheers. And that was uh, Mike Cannon-Brooks from Atlassian and uh, Grok Ventures, which is the active component in all of his activities. David, what do you make of it all? Well, actually, I learned uh, from that uh, uh, interview, uh, I got a chance to think about the valuation uh, quite quite a lot uh, and it, it became apparent to me in the course of the conversation that the demerger actually does increase the risk to AGL shareholders. The reason is that if uh, at the moment uh, the coal generation can keep selling to the retail business in the current structure for as long as it uh, management chooses, uh, but if it's demerged then the risk goes up that the coal generation won't have anyone to sell to uh, in, in a few years. And, and that's, mm. that's value destroying. That's what I learned out of that. Well, it's interesting because you mentioned also at the podcast and the conversation with Mike Cannon-Brooks that there's no institutional or a very, a very small institutional shareholder base. Now, normally these sort of discussions are sort of fought out at that sort of level. So given the fact that AGL have rejected this pretty much out of hand, saying so you've got to throw at least another billion dollars on the table or whatever that means, 
Um, and given the fact that you, to you, and I guess to other people, it might be clear that the demerger actually sort of destroys value rather than increases it. How do you think this gets resolved? Well, normally what happens now is that the um, people start, uh, there are groups of hedge funds and the like that will start accumulating stakes uh, on the basis that the shares are in play. Um, AGL shares, you know, are still only selling on an EBITDA multiple uh, earnings before interest tax and depreciation of five and a half times. That's uh, EBITDA divided by the market capitalization plus the debt. Um, and, and that's pretty low in the market. And so you could easily see it if you as, as a value stock and, and that uh, the price could be bid up. I mean, yeah, I mean, the mm. price has come down a long way. Uh, to under five dollars, and now it's gone up to seven, or about five dollars, and now it's gone up to seven dollars fifty. So, long story short, uh, it's it's likely that we'll continue. It's more likely than not uh, that uh, the retail sale shares will gradually sell to institutions of hedge funds, uh, who will then uh, basically deal to whoever puts the best bid on the table. Okay, so they might get hold of the company, but they're probably going to have to pay a bit more. Um, but I guess we'll just have to see if that's the case. Uh, uh, yes, and I mean it's fortunate for, for AGL in a sense that the earnings outlook in the sh- very short term has improved uh, as uh, uh, coal prices have gone up, uh, competitive coal prices like at Ararings, uh and gas prices have gone up and we've had the generator outages in Queensland and, and all of this has all just for the next year or so uh, made thermal generation earnings look a much better prospect than they did six months ago mm. or 12 months ago, I want to suggest to you that's only a fairly temporary thing and the long-term trend remains pretty negative for all these guys. Now, you're suggesting to me, I think I'm quoting you right, or sort of summer, uh, um, um, yes, I, I think I've got it right. You're suggesting to me that you think that maybe the closure of Araring in 2025 is actually a bigger deal, um, should it go ahead, um, than the AGL transaction, or the proposed AGL transaction. Now, why do you think that? Well, because the Araring uh, uh, thing is certain and the AGL thing is still up in the air, I suppose. I mean, obviously, if the Cannon Brooks is successful with Grok Ventures and Brookfield, uh, then that's, uh, that, that, that will ultimately be the bigger deal. Uh, I, I do want to say that there's so many angles to this, Giles, that we're never going to cover in this podcast, but the Brookfield angle is quite interesting uh, and there's a trade practices side to that. Uh, and, and, and I actually think it would be great if uh, networks and gener- retail could, and generation could get back together again in the way that they were originally split up. But let's not talk about that. The Araring closure, it's uh, uh, one of the highest cost generators in, in, in Australia of the large generators. Uh, Araring doesn't have any long-term coal contracts and coal prices are ridiculously high at the moment. If you look in the latest six months, I think you can work out that the overall fuel cost for uh, Origins coal and gas gener- uh, generation was about $70 a megawatt hour. So I think closing that will essentially open up a lot of room for Origin to, to buy in a cheaper energy and offer customers a better deal. Mm. The one caveat on this whole closure date timeline is the fact that Origin is required to get approval from the unions if it wants to close it um, around uh, early around that time. So while AEMO may feel comfortable with it, the New South Wales government may feel comfortable with it, um, that union um, agreement is actually quite essential for Origin to be able to do this. 
What does this mean then generally for the industry? What does this tell us? I mean, there's reports that Alinta are now looking for, Alinta, um, Singapore owners are now looking for an exit. Um, quite clearly, they've probably just understood that Loyang B, for instance, is not going to be operating and generating in 2049 as they might think it would have been otherwise. Uh, I, I think um, Jeff Dimery at Alinta has made it very clear on two podcasts over a couple of years that he ha- hasn't looked much beyond uh, the early, very early 2030s for the life of LYB. LYB's been had capital spent on it, so uh, Loyang B, so that it can be more flexible, ramp up and down, and operates very efficiently. Uh, so that's okay. And I want to give credit to AGL Marcus Brockoff in, in terms of the actual operations of Loyang A and Bayswater. They're, they're running better than they were a year or two ago. Uh, not that that makes much difference in the longer term. I think the we talked on the podcast, and we shouldn't talk too long now, Giles, uh, despite all the excitement, that there's a kind of uh, critical mass. And once you hit that point, um, then things tend to accelerate fairly quickly. And, you know, the, the critical mass in this was really the New South Wales uh, plan, uh, which made it very clear to how serious uh, the New South Wales government was about building lots of renewable energy and moving New South Wales from an importing state to, a, a, you know, either an exporter, a net exporter of electricity or, or best neutral. And building all this renewable energy was clearly going to make life very difficult for all the coal generators. And then you came with the ISP, uh, which which made, you know, we, we saw the stakeholders. And I just want to talk a little bit about the ISP stakeholders coming to this consensus decision. It was done with the Delphi method. Now, Giles, you'll probably know more about the Delphi method than me, but I have to look it up. And what it says is you essentially take a vote of all these stakeholders, the experts, and they are the experts, uh, uh, and then you, you distribute their answers and their reasons for their answers to amongst the whole group, and they all go away and think about what everyone else said, and then they have another vote. And uh, when when that second vote was taken, they went much more aggressive. You know, they had reached an internal consensus. Uh, that in fact a step change or, or more aggressive was actually what was going to happen. Uh, so you see that with the New South Wales plan and 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 the CEOs all come to the same conclusion. There is going to be lots of wind and solar. It's going to destroy the economics for, for coal and uh, generation. And we can see uh, 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 technical solutions for all the problems about dispatchability and system services and that. So bingo, let's do it. Let's not be the last one. Let's be the first one. If you want to be, it's only the people who don't really, haven't been in the business long enough, uh, like the uh, head of current CEO of AGL, that don't really understand. You don't want to be the last guy doing it. You want to be the first guy. Get set, get moving. Uh, You know, the early bird catches the worm here. Perhaps that's a message for Angus Taylor as well. Um, David, I think we should probably um, wrap this up at this stage. I'd like to thank um, Mike Cannon-Brooks for joining us um, this week once again, second time in a few months. And um, with the amount of activity that he's um, involved in, perhaps we'll um, hear from him again sometime soon. Um, David, thank you for your participation. Thanks to our sponsors, of course, Pylon and Evergen. Um, Thanks to everybody out there listening. Um, Thanks for your feedback. Thanks for your support. And we'll be back again next week because I think David about to go out and to do another fascinating interview but um, all will be revealed early next week thanks very much, bye for now Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen 
the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.